Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Good morning. Today's scripture reading will be from Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages may be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At the time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Good morning, church. On December 26, 1919, the Boston Red Sox traded Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees for $100,000 cash. This move marked a turning point in baseball history. Despite winning three World Series with Ruth in 1915, 16, and 18, the Red Sox felt as if they needed more cash, so they sent Ruth to the New York Yankees in 1919. After trading Ruth, the Red Sox owner was quoted saying, do not wish to detract one iota from Ruth's ability as a ball player, nor from his value as an attraction. But there is no getting away from the fact that despite his 29 home runs, The Red Sox finished sixth in the race last season. He added, what the Boston fans want, I take it, and what I want because they want it is a winning team, rather than a one-man team which finishes in sixth place. Despite Ruth's track record of being one of the league's best players at a very young age, and having already won three World Series with the Red Sox, they decided the money was more important, and this move certainly did not pay off for Boston. During Ruth's 15-year tenure with the New York Yankees, he led the team to seven World Series titles while slugging a major league-leading 659 home runs in that time. He was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame and is considered by many one of the greatest baseball players who ever lived. During Ruth's reign on top of the baseball world with the New York Yankees, life looked just a little bit different for the Red Sox. In an effort to try to save a quick buck, the franchise began their their 86-year championship drought. 
while the Yankees, sparked by the trade of Babe Ruth in 1919, went on, went on to win 26 World Series titles in that 86-year period. Not to mention that over the course of this 15 years of Ruth and pinstripes, the Yankees accrued 3.4 million, or 80 million by today's standards and profits, nearly 40% of which would be directly attributed to the great Bambino. The Red Sox knew what they had in Babe Ruth, yet for some reason they turned to go and try to find something better, ultimately to their own downfall. Such is the case here in Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. As we look at a warning to our familiar Hebrew audience, we see a people who are being tempted to turn away from Christ in this glorious new covenant in hopes of finding something better elsewhere. Much like the Red Sox, many in this audience have failed to see the glory that was available right in front of them. Instead of embracing what they have, they instead traded the best for something that only left them lifeless. Today, as we dive into the text that Mark just read for us, I want us to see the urgency with which the author of Hebrews writes this passage. Now he is pleading with his audience to listen to God's final word. All the way back at the beginning of our study of Hebrews, we saw in chapter 1 that in these last days, this time between his ascension and his second coming, that God is speaking to us through his Son and that we would do well to listen. We are warned in Hebrews 2.1 that we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. There's clearly an urgency to which he writes, and it would be wise of us to heed his word. This morning, as we explore Hebrews 12, we will see how in the midst of persecution, many of these Jewish Christians are being tempted to turn back to the old, and in doing so, deny Christ. We'll see that in the midst of this struggle, the author lays out a clear hope for the audience to cling to. A hope found solely in the person and work of Christ. This already but not yet hope culminates in God's plan to save his people and to deliver us from this temporary kingdom of darkness and into an eternal, unshakable kingdom of God. Imagine, if you will, standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, trembling as the earth shakes and the heavens thunder with the voice of God. The trumpets blast and the commands of God come, come pouring down in holy terror. The mighty presence of God veiled in smoke and fire resides over the mountain. The momentous weight of the law is being brought upon the people and the Israelites begin to worship, not in joy and in awe, but filled with fear and trembling. But now picture this, a different mountain, an eternal one, marked by joy and praise, one that we are invited to come to freely through Christ. This mountain is not like the old one of fear and trembling, but a mountain radiating the unadulterated and unfiltered glory of God. The book of Hebrews paints for us a vivid contrast between this old covenant reality, characterized by fear and trembling, versus this new covenant reality, founded upon the grace and mercy of our Savior. You also see this morning that what was once impossible under this old covenant is now made possible through Christ. We'll be reminded that in a present world filled with uncertainty and chaos, we can look forward to a world that, with an unshakable eternal kingdom. 
As the things of this world come and go and the heavens and the earth pass away, let us find our hope in our God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Before continuing on this morning, let us pray. Dear merciful Father, I just thank you that we get to gather here this morning. I thank you for your word of scripture, Lord, and that we get to see your final word to us, Lord. We thank you for the truth that is written throughout this book, and we just thank you for all that we have, Lord, that we are rooted in this unshakable kingdom of Christ, one that does not fade and that does not come and go, but one that is eternal and unshakable, Lord. We set our hope and our assurance fully in your finished work, and we look to you in all things, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So before diving into our Hebrews 12, 18 through 29 text this morning, we must consider the context of our passage. Throughout the book of Hebrews so far, we have had a few central ideas all but ingrained into the side of our heads. In chapters 1 through 10, we explore that Christ is God's final answer. Christ is our greater rest, our greater high priest, our greater covenant, our greater sacrifice, and our greater hope. Then in these past few weeks, we have seen the author addressing this group of persecuted Jewish Christian believers with a word of encouragement. The writer has urged them to hold fast to their faith in Christ. We saw in Hebrews 11 that past saints had endured persecution, clinging to yet unseen promises. And even amidst this suffering, they maintained the faith. Then last week, Pastor Pat spoke on the challenges believers faced for their faith making clear that through persecution, God is showing his love towards his people to encourage them to press on. So having gathered this greater context, let's dive into Hebrews 12, where we'll begin by looking at our first section here, verses 18 through 21. In these first four verses, we'll begin to explore the fearful contrast of the old. The author of Hebrews uses Mount Sinai, the place where Moses had received the tablets of the law to give us a picture of what life looked like under this old covenant. He shows us that here in verses 18 through 21. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, If even a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Looking at our passage, we begin to contemplate why the author is comparing these two mountains. First, we see him speak of Mount Sinai and later on with Mount Zion. The author uses the Old Testament language and this idea of approaching God to encourage his audience not to turn back. For the audience of Hebrews, the mountain does not even need to be named, but the readers would know it well. Mount Sinai, the place where God established the old covenant with Israel. The mountain is clearly being referenced as a way to symbolize this old covenant, a covenant that believers are to leave behind in order to embrace a new life of Christ. We know that the audience has been tempted to go back to the old, but the call from the author is, Don't look back. That is a covenant of gloom and doom. 
provides only condemnation, not salvation. The author reminds us not to turn back to this old covenant, one where they needed rituals, sacrifices, mediators, priests, a temple, yearly atonement to cover the sins of the people. This warning is not to turn back to the shadow when the substance is right in front of them. The example he uses here in verses 18 through 21 shows that no one under this old covenant could approach God without a covering. He speaks of the horrors of God's booming voice coming down upon the people at Mount Sinai, where God and his holy presence dwelt on the mountain. Verse 20 shows us how under the old covenant, no one could approach God or even touch the mountain on which he dwelled without being killed. The author of Hebrews does not mince words or tiptoe around this idea that under the old covenant, no one could be in the presence of God and survive. He makes clear that the people's relationship with God was not one of joy and love, but one of fear and trembling. This warning of Hebrews 12, 18 through 21 is not meant to scare the people away from worshiping God. It's to redirect them to do so properly. Not by the way of the old covenant, but by the better way of the new. He reminds them that as Christians, they are not to come to this untouchable, terrorizing, and frightening mountain. The one with jagged heights that was surrounded by thunder and lightning, where no one, not even an animal, was allowed to come near. A mountain and a place where even Moses, God's chosen representative for the people, would tremble in fear at its very sight. Where the way to God was not open, and whoever tried to approach him was met with certain death. This text comes across like one of those National Weather Service tornado warnings. You know the ones that scare the cheddar cheese out of you when they pop up on your TV? You know. The National Weather Service has issued a tornado warning for the following counties of Waukesha, Walworth, Racine. You get the idea. But that is what the author of Hebrews is doing here. The message is very clear. Do not go back. Take shelter. Come to Jesus. If you don't, if you turn to the old, simply no hope. To turn back to these practices would essentially be turning back to Mount Sinai. To go back to worshiping in a way where God was not approachable and where his presence was distant from his people. So this call to the new covenant Christians remains for us as well. We are not of this old covenant of fear and terror, but we are this new covenant in Christ, marked by mercy and grace. So we've seen how Mount Sinai symbolized this old covenant. It's unapproachable, it's earthly, and it's temporary. But now, we'll explore the joyful contrast of the new, with this idea of Mount Zion symbolizing the new covenant in its approachable, heavenly, and eternal aspects. Again, don't miss this message. We see Mount Sinai and the Old Covenant are unapproachable, earthly, and temporary compared to Mount Zion and the New Covenant, which is approachable, heavenly, and eternal. Yet still, the biggest difference between the, the Old and the New Covenant is found in our relationship, most specifically our relationship with God. 
Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, man's relationship with God has been broken and need of repair. The Old Covenant provides glimpses of that relationship, yet ultimately man's sinfulness has left us in the same situation as Adam and Eve. We needed someone outside of ourselves, outside of this broken world, to come and redeem fallen man. Under this new covenant, we have that Savior. His name is Jesus. Here in verses 22 through 24, we begin to see this hope that the author is calling us to. We see this hope and this new covenant alluded to by the idea of Mount Zion. We see the writer describes Mount Zion as a heavenly city of Jerusalem, the dwelling place of the living God. We see the beauty that this new covenant promises in that which Mount Zion symbolizes. This ultimate and future destination is where the angels and the believers whose names are written in the book of life will eternally dwell. Unlike that earthly Mount Sinai where the law was given, which was characterized by fear and trembling, Mount Zion represents this new covenant in Christ, characterized by grace and paid for by the mediator of a better covenant through a better sacrifice and whose blood speaks a better word. This is the prize for all of those who are saved, the firstborn of God, those who have been embraced by the judge of the universe. Though imperfect, they've been perfected by Christ's blood, which guarantees forgiveness, not vengeance. While the readers haven't reached this destination yet, the author depicts it as if they had. Once they embraced Jesus as their Savior, this joyful place became their new goal, their future reality, and their longed-for destination, one that the author encourages them not to stray from. When speaking of these two mountains and their related covenants, we would do well to see another example comparing the two that Paul writes about in Galatians 4, 21 through 31. We see there that Paul uses the allegory of two covenants represented by two women, Hagar and Sarah, and their sons Ishmael and Isaac. Hagar represents the covenant given at Mount Sinai, which corresponds to an earthly Jerusalem and the temporary Mount Sinai. He also uses the idea of slavery and bondage to represent the nature of this covenant. Sarah, on the other hand, represents the promises of God fulfilled in Christ, corresponding to the heavenly Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, the one we look forward to. He uses this idea of freedom that we have in Christ as a way to represent this new covenant reality. Paul contrasts the bondage of the old covenant with the freedom of the new covenant. It's the same idea the author of Hebrews is getting at. These covenants could not be any further apart in how they operate or in what they produce. This new covenant far surpasses the old because it's through a better mediator, through a better mountain, through a better priesthood, and founded on better promises, producing in it a better hope. This hope This future reality is tangible and encouraging. And the language and imagery are rich as well. The picturesque language of Mount Zion forces my mind to immediately go to Revelation 21, 1 through 7, as we take in the beauty of our future home. 
flip with me to Revelation 21, 1 through 7, or follow along on the screen as we read it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a voice, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This language we see here in Revelation 21 is so beautiful. It represents a concept that we struggle to even begin to grasp. Yet the assurance of John's words here in Revelation 21 is a certain and future reality for all who believe. This is not some far away, distant, or abstract idea, but this is the true and certain hope for all of those who believe in him. It's the promise of a future kingdom through Christ where we will gain full access to God and will spend eternity praising him in the fullness of his glory. This is the beauty of the new covenant. Our standing with God is not on the basis of works, obedience, following rituals, sacrifices, or, or on our merit. This new covenant is not about anything good in us at all. It is instead founded on a better foundation, a better mediator, a better covenant, who by his better blood becomes our perfect sacrifice. This is the reality the author of Hebrews calls us to look to in verses 22 through 24. He reminds us that there is no hope outside of Christ. Going back to the old is never the answer. Trading the best for something less is never the answer. Our only answer, regardless of all the noise, the pressures from the outside that might distract us, is to rest solely in Christ. We've seen the author lay out the two options, going back to the old or embracing the glory of the new. And now he further lays out the details of this greater gift, but it comes with a greater warning. We read of this in verses 25 through 27, which are as follows. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, 
in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Here in this passage, we see again this idea I mentioned back at the intro. Hebrews 1 and 2 reminded us that we need to listen to the one who is speaking. This isn't just some ho-hum messenger, but it's God himself. He's speaking to us through his son. In verse 25, the author explains that the Israelites did not escape when they did not heed him who warned them on earth. The him in this, in this verse is God, who warned them from earth on Mount Sinai when he came down and gave the law to Moses. At that moment, the people of Israel said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We know that those words proved to be very, very hollow. The Israelites rejected God's commands and obliterated the entirety of the Old Covenant. Under that Old Covenant, the rejection of God cost, them, cost the people land and provisions for generations. The Jewish people knew well the intense consequences that came with rejecting the Old Covenant. Yet how much more so will we be punished eternally if we reject this greater message from heaven? This message is simple yet glorious. The message is Christ and him crucified. It is the person and work of Christ on our behalf. It is the eternal hope of eternity with God in glory. This is the message brought down from heaven that is one of mercy and grace. Well, the call is simple. Believe and rest in the one whom he has sent. If you reject this message, there is no hope for the soul. There is no hope for the one who rejects God's provision of life, who tramples underfoot the Son of God. This is the same idea and the same warning we got back in Hebrews 10, 29-31. It reads, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To reject Christ, to trample underfoot the one whose blood is the source of life itself, is to reject our one and our only hope. We see in verse 26 now, once again alluding to the events of Mount Sinai, where the Israelites witnessed the shaking of the earth as God delivered the old covenant to Moses. We had talked earlier about how this was marked by fear and terror for the people of Israel. Yet even this shaking is just but a shadow. Continued into verse 27, the author references Haggai 2.6, in which God promises to shake not only the earth, but also the heavens at his impending return. When Christ returns, not to deal with the sin, but to save those who eagerly await him, there will be a much greater shake. One where everything that can be shaken will be removed, leaving only that which is unshakable. Meaning that if we reject Christ and look to anything else, we'd be trusting in the very things that at his coming will be destroyed. The message is quite clear. 
we reject God's greater gift and fullest provision, the Lord's return and the greater shake of all things shakable should terrify us. Yet we are not of these people. We, instead, are the ones who look forward to the glory that is to come. Thankfully, this greater shake is not a day for us to fear, but a day in which we should long for. We need not fear as we have an unshakable hope whose word can be trusted and whose very own blood has paid our ransom. Much like the audience of this letter, we are so prone to look to anything and everything other than Christ. Whether it be going back to law-keeping and navel-gazing, or be rejecting Christ for the things of this world, any one of those paths would leave us equally lost. We as believers often forget that what God requires in his law, he's given us in his gospel. We forget that Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Our righteousness is in heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. We often forget that whoever believes in Jesus will never be put to shame. We forget that Jesus has offered himself for us to the judgment of God and has removed all the curse from us. We forget that at our salvation it produces rejoicing in heaven. Nonetheless, we still sin, we are still weak, and yet despite our inadequacies, we have a sure an unshakable hope in Christ. Friends, the stakes couldn't be any higher. We either believe that Christ is enough in this life and the one to come, or we don't. The message has been consistent. There is rest for the weary who trust in Christ. And there is doom and gloom for those who reject This is not a matter of our obedience, but a matter of who is our hope in. We look to the shakable, material, and temporary things of this fallen world, or we hold fast to the one who possesses a kingdom greater than this world. We often see in this world, even as Christians, how distracted we can become by the things of this world. Just how easy it is for us to take our attention away from our one true hope, Popular among many Christian circles, there are different ways to distort the gospel and distort this hope that we might have. One is to look away from Christ's finished work and instead look to a man-centered, prosperity-type gospel. Hopefully by now, or hopefully not, you are all aware of the dangers of Joel Osteen, the live-your-best-life-now rubbish of financially motivated, purpose-driven, and rewards-based Christianity. But there's another type of prosperity gospel, one that's been sneaking its way into Christianity, especially here in America. One that I don't doubt has good intentions behind it, but is lacking any serious biblical basis for it. Is this politically charged nationalism ideology, where many on all sides of the ledger will use Christianity to spring for themselves into politics and social justice wars, where there is a misplaced focus on the political and national interests ahead of the spread of the gospel. Where our biggest focus becomes the present earthly kingdom 
in the transformation of the culture. Where the message of the church becomes how bad everyone else in this world is, and here's what I must do to make it better and change them. Rather, the message of Christianity must remain to continue to preach Christ for sinners in the midst of a fallen and broken world who are in need of redemption. Since the fall of Adam, the, few, the world has been cursed, and as a result, it will continue to groan and be subjected to futility until Christ returns to make all things new. But until then, as this creation groans, it will be continue to be subjected to bondage. This world and this present kingdom are only temporary. Therefore, our focus should be on something that's far beyond this common kingdom, an unshakable hope, an unshakable kingdom in Christ. Yet many have this idea that through changing our culture, we can usher in this heavenly kingdom where we believe that sinful humanity is somehow going to be good enough to warrant God's return. To think that we as these broken people who needed God to send his very own son to save us from sin and death is somehow now merited Christ's return by what we are doing? It would be putting our hope back in man in a way just like the prosperity gospel does. Where if we just behave and plead with God enough, he will give us our best life now. These are two forms of prosperity gospel that diminish our view of who Christ is. These earthly-focused ideologies take the focus off what Christ has already secured for us and instead puts the focus on earning favor or standing before God. These ideologies distort the clarity of the one true gospel. To trust in anything other than the finished work of Christ on Calvary's cross would essentially be putting your trust back into the shakable and fleeting things of a fallen world. We as Christians have one hope. It's not in a political campaign. It's not in the Milwaukee Brewers. It's not in Ronald McDonald or Donald Duck or Donald Trump or Joe Biden or whoever else you want to put your faith in. We live in a world completely corrupted by sin. But thankfully, our hope is in a living God not in a dying world. Our hope is in the one who condescended as a man, who lived the perfect sinless life on our behalf, who fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law, who died the perfect death at Calvary's cross, who by his blood has purchased our pardon, who did not just suffer and die, but he is the one who buried and was rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, who is currently seated at the right hand of the Father, one who will return to bring about this new kingdom where he will finally save his people. He has already paid for our sins, but when he returns, he is taking us home. This is the hope in which we can look forward to. We have a God who has been faithful to his promises. We have a Savior who has already paid the price on our behalf. We do not need to look anywhere else but Christ. See, if you trust in Christ, you've already received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's a kingdom you didn't work for. It's a kingdom you didn't build yourself. It's a kingdom that you did not earn. Rather, in the same way that the earth receives the rain, so too do we receive this unshakable kingdom. 
This hope is that is as certain and secure as it gets, and it's for all those who are in Christ. This is the idea the author of Hebrews is getting at in verses 28 and 29. Our present posture should reflect this truth. We need not try to earn what has already been paid for. Rather, we should live our lives more and more in accordance with what we already possess. All that we could possibly need has already been paid for by the blood of Christ. Therefore, let us be grateful that we have received this unshakable hope. Let us praise God because of it. Our holy and just God in love has secured for us an unshakable kingdom. Remember the words of Christ in John 14. My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Let us be grateful that Christ has already prepared a place for us. Do not just take the penalty of our sins, die and rise to rule and reign. He didn't just leave us in this broken world, but he promised that he would return and make all things new. Well, he will wipe away every tear where pain and suffering will be no more. In this unshakable kingdom, we will see the glory of our God and the fullness of that which is ours in Christ. Let us read Revelation 21, 1 through 7, one more time. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. Let us pray. Dear Father, just thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that you sent your son to die on our behalf take away our sins, but also to prepare a place for us in glory with you, Lord. This this eternal, unshakable kingdom that we look forward to, Lord, is solely on the basis of what you have done. We look forward to the day when every tear is wiped and all pain and suffering and death will be no more. We are in the fullness of your glory, Lord, and we rejoice 
and all that you have accomplished for us. Let us go about praising you for this truth and this reality that we have secured by your son's very blood. Lord, let this all be for your glory. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.